I invite you to open your Bibles in the first letter of Peter, Apostle Peter, first letter, chapter 1. First Peter, chapter 1, we'll be looking at uh, verses 6 and 7 tonight. However, I'll read from verse 3 just for context. First Peter, chapter 1 beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, before we pray once more, um, I feel... um, especially inadequate tonight to be preaching on rejoicing through trials where many of us are passing through difficult times, um, keenly aware um, that the only reason I'm able to do this, to speak authoritatively, to people that are suffering real troubles, grief and suffering, is that it is based not on me, on my performance, but on the Word of God. And therefore, if I come short, it is not about me, it is about God's Word being obeyed and Him being glorified. So with that in mind, I invite you to pray once more. Father, Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you, Lord. Come speak to us tonight, Lord, I pray. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will do what I cannot do, no man can do. That I would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to accurately explain, apply, illustrate your word and worship as I do that accordingly and that your people who hear it including myself would respond in faith and glorify you for it and that they would be strengthened and encouraged through it in the name of Jesus we pray Amen so The verse starts in this, verse 5, 
sorry, six. In this you rejoice. In this what? Well, the previous uh, sermons is what he is referring to. So in this, in the knowledge, in the fact that God has chosen us, He has caused us to be born again. He has been born again. We are born into His family. He promises, since we are in His family, we have an inheritance. And this inheritance will never be corrupted. It will never pass away. It will never fade away. Its glory will always be there, kept for us. And not only the inheritance is there kept for us, but we are given a hope of that inheritance. We live in a living hope, with a living hope. We live with an expectancy of receiving this inheritance. So, we have been born again by God through the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. We have been born again to this living hope of receiving this inheritance. And then he says that we have this salvation. Inheritance is not only the inheritance kept, but we are kept between our new birth and our time in heaven, our receiving of that inheritance. We are kept throughout so that we receive faith and he keeps us in faith to the day we die, to the day we receive that inheritance. So on that knowledge, with our minds focused, fixed on that, he's saying to these troubled Christians, that in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. In fact, the NASB translates it slightly better. It says you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice. Verse 8, it says that it is a joy that is inexpressible and filled with God's glory. This joy then is... I want us to notice, first of all, the, what this joy is. Uh, there are several words in Greek for the word joy or rejoice or being glad. And uh, they all have similar but slightly different connotations. And it seems to me that this, and, and scholars in Greek, because I don't know Greek, but it seems to me and scholars that we trust um, have the same opinion, and if you go through the uses of this word, it's very obvious that this joy is a joy that is always attached to God or what He has done. So you will not find this joy being used in secular uh, uh, um, writings. You not you you see this joy even in the Bible attached. To something else. So let's say you have a joy because um, you found something, or you have a joy because you received a gift. That is not used. That word is not used for that. It's always a spiritual, it's a joy attached to a spiritual fact. And it's always, it seems, a joy that is internal, but it expresses itself through praise, using your mouth, or a happiness that is externalized. So I'll just give you one example. Mary, in her Magnificat, Mary, when she, after, well, she visits, visitors, visits her cousin Elizabeth, and the baby, John the Baptist, in uh, Elizabeth's womb, uh, rejoices or, you know, uh, moves. And then um, Mary 
breaks out in praise to God and she says this, My soul rejoices in the God, my Savior. So she is rejoicing in God and that is externalized in praise. And that is what it seems to be uh, here. So this joy then is not just about having a fake smile or a superficial uh, uh, a smile on your face. It's not someone that is always laughing at every bad joke. It's not someone that is just cheaper, you know, or sassy. It is a spiritual joy. It's a fruit of the, the Holy Spirit. It is a joy that only believers have. It is a joy that is given by the Holy Spirit on, and it's based on, the spiritual truths of the Bible. Who God is, what He has done. It's a supernatural joy, not a superficial feeling. Now, notice with me that this joy, that this, uh, when he says, in this you rejoice, he's just stating a matter of fact. He's not saying you should rejoice. He's just saying, in this you rejoice. He's basically saying that all the, the, the believers that we see in Chapter in verses 3 to 5, who have been born again and have this living hope, they all rejoice. Okay? They all rejoice. It's not that some of them would feel, oh, hold on a second, I don't rejoice in that. Come on, uh, Apostle Peter, there's something wrong. No. He says that every believer, as they are reminded of the truths of the gospel, of who God is and what God has done, they naturally will break forth in joy and uh, gladness and rejoicing. Now, you may say, well, are you saying then that if I don't have this joy, I'm not a true believer? Not necessarily. It could be. But not necessarily. So if you don't have this joy now, I ask you, did you ever have this joy? Can you look back in time and remember, if you remember when you were born again, the joy that you used to have, your first love? Can you remember for the first time actually believing that you were a sinner, dead in your sins, and there is nothing you can do to help yourself to be saved, to be reconciled with God, and then you see there is a Christ who did everything you couldn't do and then died in your place to take your sins, and in that you rejoice. Maybe you don't remember when you were born again. Maybe you're too young. Maybe you're too old now. But you must remember at some time back that maybe a remembrance or hearing the gospel again, it rejoiced again that you were reminded of those things and your state uh, outside Christ. So why may believers not have this joy or not rejoicing at this moment. Um, much could be said. Perhaps um, your mind is filled with not the facts that he is mentioning in this, but maybe your mind is filled with things that don't bring you, don't remember, don't uh, bring to remembrance the joy of your salvation. Um, in John 15, 11, our Lord says this, in the, uh, sorry, these things I have spoken to you 
that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So think about it. Jesus is saying, I'm saying things. I'm, I'm using my mouth. You are hearing. As you're hearing, why are you hearing? Why is he saying this? So that they may have joy. So joy comes when our mind is filled with truths. This type of joy at least. So this type of joy here is attached to facts, to truths. Um, another example, in, in John 16, 24, we have, Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. We need to understand that our heart needs to be instructed by our minds. We must be filling our minds with truths. We must be training our minds to focus on what must be focused on so that our affections will, will come forth after our mind understands it. So basically, in this you rejoice. If you don't know what this is, you may not rejoice. Christ says, I'm saying these things so that you may, may have joy. But if you're not hearing them, you won't have that joy. So... That might be one of the explanations and a way for us to get that back. Our heart, our emotions, our affections, we respond to what the brain, the, the mind knows and is focused on. Maybe we've been distracted by the worries of the world and providentially Pastor Ryan this morning spoke on that. So work hard at rejoicing. Feed your mind. Set your eyes on the hope of the things that, have, that will come. Set your mind on the, what has been done. Set your minds on who God is. However, the point of this chapter or these verses is not, as he's describing the normal behavior or the normal rejoicing of these believers, the point is not to bash our heads with the Bible saying, Rejoice! Come on, you gloomy Christian, you pitiful, miserable Christian. You should be laughing, you should be rejoicing. That's not the point. The point is this, that if you don't have that joy, if you have forgotten things and now you are distracted by the world, or maybe you have fallen into unrepentant sin, maybe you haven't confessed sin, and you are holding fast to that sin, and you have lost the joy of your salvation, like the psalmist says, the point is not just to condemn and bash you with the Bible of these verses. But the point is, God does not want you to be joyless. God wants you to be joyful, to rejoice. That is the point. So how can we do that? First of all, let us recognize there is a problem here. And second of all, let us repent. First of all, then, Recognize there is a problem. The Bible is full of commandments to rejoice. This is not a commandment. This is just stating that they do rejoice. But the, the Bible is, is full of commandments for us to be joyful. 1 Peter 4, even inside this, 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 this uh, uh, letter, it says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, Rejoice. Commandments. Now you may say, well, if you only knew what my life is like, you, 
you would be joyless as well. If you only knew how much I'm suffering, you know, you'd understand that I cannot have joy. Fair play, I don't know. I haven't passed through what you're passing through. However, think of what you're saying. Are we really saying that our suffering is so big that the truths of the gospel and the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ is not enough for us to be rejoicing? Is that what we're saying? That there is nothing that we can hold on to now and there is nothing we can look forward to later that will make us rejoice even through suffering. No. There is nothing, no amount of suffering, as painful that it may be, that will not, that will surpass, surpass, surpass the, the, the promise or the joy of our salvation and what Christ has achieved for us. We are not entitled to be joyless just because we are passing through troubles. We are not entitled to be joyless. Second of all then, so if the Bible commands and if that is the only natural or the proper way to respond to the truths of the gospel and what Christ has done for us and who He is, the only God-honoring way and God-glorifying way is for us to be joyful in those things, then the second step is to repent. Repent. We need to recognize there is a problem and it is a problem of sin. If we are not living in joy, we are living in a, we are dishonoring God. We are not living in accordance to what He has done and, and who He is for us. Now, the point is not to despair but to restore us to full joy. And hopefully, the following truths will help us get, in, get that joy back. In this, so, in this uh, verse uh, 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You have been grieved by various trials. Now, Notice here that this is not opposed to their joy. This is, maybe it's not very clear in English, but it's this. You, in this you rejoice, even though you're passing through this. Or even though you may be passing through this. Or even though you may pass through this in the future. It's not, a, it's not that you stop being joyful and then you grieve. It is a type of joy that even through grief, you still have it and you don't lose it. Your suffering does not have to steal your joy. Your suffering, grief, is not meant to steal our joy. Your joy is not based on circumstances, environment, but in who God is and what He has done for us. However, I don't want us to minimize or downplay the grief part of it. It is a real grief. It says, in this you rejoice... Though for a while, you grieve. This grief is real. This grief is suffering, it's painful. 
It hurts. And it is normal and expected for Christians to feel grief and suffer when they pass through trials. The mature spiritual Christian is not that Christian that passes through trials and he's just chipper. And he's just like, no, there is no, nothing to grieve here. The mature Christian is not the Christian that his child dies, his uncle passes away, his marriage is in a desperate state, he loses his job, and he says, no, I don't feel anything. I'm happy. No. It is normal and expected for us to grieve. But the grieving is not at the expense of the joy. We need to create this category in our minds where grief and joy, they can live together. This type of joy at least. Because though you are passing through these things, you have your mind focused on what is coming later. And who God is and what he has done for you. Now, okay, we can have joy because our joy is on what is coming, in our inheritance, in the future. But there is more. We can have joy now, even through sufferings, because there is a meaning for our suffering, and there is a purpose for our suffering. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If necessary. So why are they rejoicing in what's coming, even though they're passing through trials? Because they know this is necessary. Now, if it is necessary, think of it. Necessary. If it was just chance or random calamity, if it was just a meaningless fate, then they wouldn't be necessary. It would just be an accident. Because it is necessary, it shows us that there is a meaning for it. Who is making it necessary? Turn, to me, turn with me, please, to chapter 3. It's probably just the next page. Verse 17. 3, 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Notice here that it's better to suffer for doing good uh, but there is a, okay, it may not happen, right? It's better. It may not happen. What is defining that it would happen or not? if that should be God's will. Right? So, those who are doing good may suffer. And what's defining that they would suffer or not suffer? God's will. Turn with me, chapter 4, 19. Please. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Why is it necessary? Because God is the one willing it to happen. Our grief 
is because of trials. The trials are sent by God with a meaning and with a purpose. Now, I'm not the verse, rather, it's not downplaying sin. So, people sin against us, people abuse us, or persecute us. The immediate context here is persecution for faith, but I believe this also applies to all sorts of suffering because all sorts of suffering are trials. They have the potential to take our faith away. So we are suffering for someone's sin towards us. So these Christians in chapter 3, they were suffering for doing good. Right? So the people that are making them suffer for doing good, they're responsible for it. The trial, the suffering, the pain is caused by sin. And those people sinning against them, they are responsible for it. And that is wicked, evil, and God would rather not have them do it. However, what I'm saying here, what this verse is saying is this, that God is not delighting, He's not delighting in you suffering. He's not looking at you expecting, oh yeah, I'm going to find something to make them suffer. No, He's not delighting in it. But He is looking at the purpose of, okay, I'll bring these trials, I'll allow these trials to come, so that these will result. There is a result, there is a purpose coming from those trials. What is it then? The meaning and the purpose. The, the reason and the purpose. The reason is to refine our faith. The purpose is to bring us reward. So let's look at the reason. Refining our faith. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. So, remember we talked about the imperishable inheritance in verse 4? Now, not only the inheritance is imperishable, but our faith is imperishable. True faith is a faith that goes through the most difficult times and it, and it survives. True faith is like a precious stone or a metal, gold, that though it is full of rubbish and, and junk and, and, and soil, it passes through the hardest or the hottest furnace and it survives. So though our faith is tested, it is imperishable, so it will survive. And as we go then, so the idea is as the gold is boiled in this furnace, is boiled with fire, the impurities are burned off. And what you have left is pure, refined gold. In the same sense, our faith, as it goes through trials, as it goes through pain and suffering, it boils in the fire of difficulty. It boils in the fire of suffering and pain. And what's left, if it is real, God-given supernatural faith, is a refined faith. And that is the reason for our trials. So God then brings trials to our lives, not in a meaningless way, not in a sense that he couldn't do anything. The devil has control and, you know, I guess he needs to allow it until he comes back. 
No, he allows it. Yes, the devil is responsible for it. The people sinning against you, they are responsible for it. And they will be held responsible and accountable for it. However, God is the ultimate one in control. He's the one that is bringing this, ultimately speaking. And he's the one that is using this for a good reason and a good purpose. You know, the devil is a lion. He's, you know, sprouting, ready to devour. He's a thief, ready to steal, kill, and destroy. However, this lion is on a leash. The devil is on a leash, and he can only devour those whom God allows. And he can only destroy what God destroys. And even as he's doing that, he's doing what the, the, God's purpose. He's bringing God's purpose through his... Uh, Awful destruction. So, how do troubles test our faith? The answer is this. As we go through trials, as we suffer, how are we responding to it? How will we respond? Will this trouble throw us to God and as our only help, as our only joy, and as our only treasure... Or will we respond with anger and bitterness and discontentment and pride and lack of self-control or complaining? How we respond to the trials defines if we are being refined or not. Turn with me to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, please. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 37. Mark, Mark chapter 4, 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. 38. But he was in the stern, that is Jesus, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. 40. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So here we can see in the, at the very least that there was a trial, there was a trouble, yeah? The waves were bashing, the, 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 the boat was filling with water, and they seemed to have answered with fear, with doubt, and even perhaps contempt for Jesus. They are kind of rebuking the Lord. Do you not care? And isn't that how we oftentimes respond to trials? God, do you not care? Do you not care? Imagine this. Jesus is in the boat. He's the creator of the universe. He became a man. He suffered as a man. He is there being mocked and he's, you know, dwelling with sinners and he has dust on his feet and he's tired for ministering. The God of the universe is tired because he's it's taken human flesh. And he's sitting there and he's going to save all of them with taking their sins and dying on a cross. And they are asking, do you not care? And many times we're doing the same thing. We pass through suffering, and yes, they are real. 
Yes, they are painful. Yes, we'd rather, and if we can, run away from those sufferings and we do what we can so that we won't have to pass through those again. But as you're passing through it, remember, it is for a good purpose. That's where we turn it now. So that, going back to 1 Peter chapter 1, and then it says this, so that may be found to result in. Do you see it? Uh, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness, so that. That is giving you the purpose. So this must happen, so that will happen. You see? If this doesn't happen, that won't be happening. So, God is, he's, Peter is basically saying, the trials and the suffering are happening so that something else may come. Okay? So that's the purpose. And what is the purpose then? So if the meaning is the trial, the purpose is the praise and glory and honor so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, who is this praise and glory and honor to? Is this to God or is this to us? Um, I believe it's to us. Because there are several things. I'll just mention a couple. Um, the idea of God glorifying us is not foreign to the Bible. So in, in Romans 2, 29, it says this, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the person that is a Jew inwardly, that has circumcised their heart, they have praise from God. 1 Corinthians 4, and 4, 5 says this, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness, and you disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Each one will receive his commendation from God. So in the judgment day, God will commend those who are faithful. How about glory? So that's honor and praise from God to us in the last day. How about glory? Romans 8.30 says that those who have been predestined, He also called. Those who He called, He justified. Those who He justified, He glorified. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So this light and momentary afflictions, this pain now, is preparing for us. So as you pass through this, is working out, is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. Also, because the glory and the praise and the honor is in the last time, meaning in heaven or many in His second coming, I can only assume or can only deduce that this is to us. Because when Christ comes back and we are glorified in a new body, body, we will be seeing Him for whom He is and we won't need faith. We will be there. We will see Him. We will just be with Him. Right? 
So what is your faith, the testing of your faith, good for honoring him then? It's now. So I think this is the best interpretation. We praise God, honor God, and glorify God through our trials now. And when we come to heaven, he will praise and honor and glorify us for the tested genuineness of our faith. God will basically say this. He gives us faith. He makes us born again. He uh, makes sure that we are preserved and we will be you know, uh, safe until we get to heaven in inheritance. And as we go going through trials, he makes sure we persevere. He makes sure we don't wave, we, uh, wave, we don't uh, lose faith. That we respond positively to trials. And when he get, we get to heaven, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that an amazing thought? That one, our trials, they are not meaningless. They are refining our faith. And that should be good reason enough. A true Christian is, a, is always going to be praying, Lord, purify me. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? My faith is mixed with doubt. My faith is mixed with pride. My faith is mixed with unloving and unkindness. Lord, my faith is mixed with self-righteousness. Purify me, refine me, help me. And he does that through trials. Not only that, but as we are persevering and being faithful through suffering, in the end, you look back our, to our faithfulness and our steadfastness in faith, even through trials, and you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Even though he was the one, ultimately speaking, that was making sure that we would pass through it. He is the one that is sustaining us through faith, we saw last week. He is the one that is giving us faith, and he is the one that is persevering, making us persevere in faith. It's like it reminds me of um, uh, when I was a child, I would go to my dad and ask money, so I would buy him a, 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 a birthday gift. He's the one giving it. I'm just going and buying what he has given me already, and he knows it. But he delights in the gift nonetheless. We persevere. We work hard. We strive. But it is God that is giving us the will and the power to do it. Now, even in 1 Peter 5, 4 we have, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, um, to finish then, look with me at the last phrase, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not earthly praise. It's not earthly glory. It's not earthly honor. We work for an eternal, imperishable, uncorruptible, unfading honor praise and glory from our God not from people not on earth 
Today, it may be very hard for us without any praise and any honor and any glory pass through these trials. But we set our minds to the reward we receive in heaven. Luke 12, 33 says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. A little while. How long is that little while? Well, it is little if you look at it from the perspective of eternity. But it is very hard if we focus only on earth. If our minds, our eyes are not set on the things that are to come, in the spiritual things and in the reward, in the inheritance, the salvation to come in heaven, then it would be very hard for us to pass through these trials because they will seem very long. Um, when we go to Brazil, it's always a, a long journey. Um, it's long here, but it was even longer in Dubai. Uh, from door to door, I think he used to, Manda may correct me, but it used to take more than a whole day, more than 24 hours to get to the destination. And it's tiring, and I can only imagine now with two children doing the same thing. Lord have mercy. Um, it's very tiring. It's exhausting. It's um, hard. But we always have a smile on our faces when we go. Because we are reminded of what's coming. We are reminded that they will be with our parents very soon. That they will see our children very soon. That we will have the best food in the world uh, very soon. When we go back, it always is harder. It's, it always seems um, longer. It's the same journey. But it seems longer, it seems that the time doesn't pass because we don't have as much to look forward to. You know, this time will be different because we have a great family here and we have a great uh, things coming and uh, <laughs> waiting for us. Uh, but you get the point. If we set our minds on the things that are to come, there is no amount of suffering now that will take away our joy. Let us all encourage each other to rejoice, for our salvation is great, and our God is even greater. Let us pray. Father Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for you provide for us all that we need. You provide for us righteousness. You provide for us faith. You provide for us new birth. You provide for us the inheritance. We provide for us salvation. You provide for us the persevering to the end. And you provide for us trials. Oh Lord, help us rejoice even through trials. Help us see trials as a good thing. Not that the trial and the suffering is a good thing in themselves, but the result what you're bringing forth, what you're creating that wouldn't be created, what you're refining that wouldn't be refined if we didn't pass through the trials. That is a good thing. That is for our good. We trust you. We put our souls and our faith and we entrust in you even through the hardest pains and sufferings because your salvation is worth it and communion, sweet communion with you forever and ever is worth it. In the name of Jesus, I pray, Lord, for those who don't have this joy. Oh, Lord, do the miracle of rejoicing, of giving them joy and gladness in your word. 
Only you can do it, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would use even such a feeble word, a, a sermon as this for that end. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.